This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine to another edition of Wireless Books brought to you by the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, Dunedin's oldest institution and library. And it is coming up Christmas time. I've seen all the decorations, especially at Farmers. So a good time to say what that perfect gift will be. Uh, even for me, it would be lovely, is a year-long subscription to the Athenaeum, $69 including GST per year. What a bargain. Mm. Will um, let you have the most wonderful books that you can ever imagine. Online, have to take them back. <laughs> you get to keep them for four weeks though. Yes, Beth, in fact, this, this it's November. It just seems so whoosh. And here we are in November and the year's just about over. Yes, yes it is. Um, so, fireworks night. Guy Fox, are you a subscriber to that jolly old lights in the sky? And I was thinking the other day that each year I am totally taken by surprise by Halloween and then I am taken <laughs> by surprise by the Melbourne Cup and then I am taken by surprise by Guy Fox Night. And it's because I don't really care for any of them, so they just... Oh, bah, yeah, I know. But, yes, I, so every year I'm like, oh, it's Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> every year I do buy... Uh, chocolates uh, in case some children come and then you eat them yeah they never come so I just take them into the office actually there's plenty of little ghouls there well I think most people now Christmas sorry Halloween is just such a recent thing for us really it's within if you're as old as me it's within living memory (laughs) well (laughs) I don't know how I Remember no, the first time that some kids turned out trick or treating, and it was like, pardon? <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you confused or something? But I think they'd been their teacher had done a a module on it or something. It's an interesting thing. And then the warehouse started selling cheap um, costumes, and that was it was all on. And people liked the excuse to get dressed up and, and sweets. But most people sort of organise. Parties, parties for their children mm. and don't. Mm. I think very few people would be just going and knocking on random houses. Well, no one knocked on my random house, so there you go. Well, I was actually, there was something on my, um, you know, internet feed. It's a picture of this sad little boy because he and his mother had gone out walking for, oh, for, for hours and knocking, and even knocking on the doors of the people who had their houses decorated. Nobody had... Most of the time, people didn't even answer the door, and then nobody had any sweets for him. So, in the end, his grandfather had to drive over and give him some sweets. Oh. And I just thought, and then she said, Well, I think next year I'll organise something. And I thought, Yeah, right, just like everybody <laughs> else does, love. 
I mean, it's, it's not it's not the general public's um, duty to keep your children and sugar com- comestibles. But anyway, oh gosh, you're a Grinch. I know Grinch is used. I'm using it for the wrong season, but I can't think of anything else. Even if it, well, as I said, I am always prepared. Not even the neighbours' children come mm. over. Well, I really. You know, like I said, I can remember when it started, but the really, I think it's only about two t- two different years when people when children have knocked on in our door, and um, and each time we had something to give to them, and the next time I thought, oh, this is going to be a thing, so I brought a big packet of lollipops, and then Darby turned up, and they sat there by the front door for for months and months, and they kind of melted in the sun. He had to oh, throw them look away. Look at you! You were kind anyway. You you were prepared. Yes, well, if a child knocked on my door now, I couldn't even offer them an apple. I really... (laughs) (laughs) Times are tough. Times are tough. No, it's more that I I try not to buy chocolates and things like that or... Or Or apples, obviously. Well, if I buy an apple, I sort of buy like two or three of them and eat them quickly. I don't have things hanging around. Because I don't buy biscuits because I think, oh, I'll only eat those. You see, all those comestibles are very different to books, isn't it? (laughs) Doesn't matter how many books we have hanging around, we're going to get around to reading them, even if we don't. Doesn't matter. It's there. Well, books. Maybe you should give out books next time if mm. they do come around. Maybe I should just give them out. Um, little join the Athenaeum. Yeah, but you give them flyers. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I have um, book three by Jane Harper. It's not her third book, but it's her third book with her hero, um, Aaron Fork, and this is supposedly the final one because um, I think she always wanted him because she's the writer of The Dry of course I loved Mm. The Dry The Dry was just so good yes and she's and then she wrote Forces of Nature with with Aaron again. Then she's written two other stand-alone books. And then she's gone back to, to Aaron. And this is supposed to be the end of Aaron because um, she's she's left him happy, which is always... Faith. It's nice to leave people happy. Yes. Well, yes, it is nice, but that's totally ruins your detective. How, how can your detective go out and detect things if he's happy? Oh, good point. Anyway... She, I suppose um, his his happiness can always be ruined if she wants to go back to him. Anyway, he's he's back in a country town where the year before there'd been a festival and a baby carriage had been left. They had a, a like a parking bay for baby carriages and one and at the end of the night this one baby carriage left. And when the guy sort of locking up looks at the baby carriage, he notices there's actually a baby in there, and um, then they. They hunt for the mother who has left her wallet and her cell phone in the baby carriage as well, and um, she's never to be found. They find her shoe in the reservoir, and that's the only signs of her. And a year later, they're they're trying to jog people's memory, so they're having a reenactment. Is it? Well, just handing out flies, and you know, do you remember seeing this woman? Oh. And by fluke, Aaron was actually there when the woman disappeared because he's friends with a man, a family who don't live in the town anymore, but their their core family live there, and um, he's been asked to be the the godfather of of their newborn baby, and he'd gone they'd gone back to the country town to have the christening, 
and so the christening was cancelled the first year. So on the year on the anniversary, Aaron's back again to, for the rescheduled christening, and also to take you know to help with the um, the trying trying to jog people's memories. Mm. And he he starts to uncover stuff. And um, yes, it's I think all be, go from there. It is all go from there, and. Um, in many, many ways. And I think you'll probably want this. I'll just I'll just hand it over. Now, I've got the latest uh, Anthony Horovich. Oh. It's the twist of a knife and it's one of the Hawthorne um, mysteries. And I actually talking about if I buy biscuits I eat them. I <laughs> I took this book home with me on the long weekend and I stayed up all night Friday essentially and read it oh. till the <laughs> I just could High not. St- indeed. I could not stop myself. It yeah. was terrible. And if I'd had a packet of biscuits to eat, I would have. <laughs> but no, I just kept on with the book. And, and no, I was actually quite happy. I didn't think, oh, I wish I had some biscuits with this. I was just like, ooh, what's going to happen next? Oh, I do love Anthony Horowitz. I do, I do, I do. And I think I said this before. When I first read the Hawthorne series, I was a bit confused by it because he's a character in his own book, and I was mm. I couldn't get my head around it. And then, and then reading the next one, I or the third one, I sort of it clicked, and I think I I went back and re- reread them and just loved loved mm. them loved them, and so this one I'm kind of I didn't have to work out oh what's what's going on here he's a he's a character, and so I just enjoyed it and like there were laugh aloud moments in it, mm. but it's um. He's given Hawthorne the, the brush off. He's not going to write any more Hawthorne books, mm. he tells them, and because he's got a play coming out. And he's he's always loved the theatre. And he tried acting, but he wasn't any good at acting. And, he's, and he tried writing plays, and they never really went anywhere. But anyway, he's written this play that's been taken up by a producer, and it's getting its West, its West End um, opening in London. And he's really excited by it. But... It gets a horrific review <laughs> by by the critic, which is bad enough, it's depressing enough. But then the same critic who actually sing, singled out Anthony Horowitz as a terrible writer and should stay away from place, um, was murdered the next day. And it's it's and it's by a knife that belongs to Anthony and has his fingerprints on it. Plus, there's a hair off his from his head on it, so it looks like he's he's committed the deed. And so, old um, colleagues of Hawthorne's immediately leap in and and, and arrest him. So he has to call in Hawth- Hawthorne to to help him, and together they um, they solve the murder the murder. And it's just really very enjoyable. It's you know, a page turner, as, as as you would say. Yes. I'm glad you didn't um, tell me the end. I thought you were just swept up and, you know, waxing so lyrical about it. I thought, God, am I actually going to be able to read the book or is she just going to tell me it all? So um, it's going to be very good. Thank you very much for reviewing it for me. For reading it before me, which I find quite rude, but anyway. Huh. Well, I have to have a look at them all before. <laughs> Honestly, I think I do, I do this by touch osmosis. <laughs> mm. Now, this is All the Broken Places by John Boyne, and 
he became famous when he wrote The Boy, the boy in, in the Striped Pajamas. And do you know why I knew it? Because, you know, my memory's dreadful about either the title of a book or the author. And I immediately knew that book was by the author of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas because the cover is the same. Mm, and it also says on the top. Well, I didn't <laughs> see that. I didn't. I wasn't mm. cheating. So this is actually the, the story of what happened to the boy in the striped pyjamas. Um, not his sister, but the, the German boy he befriended, um, his sister. Um, what's her name? Gretel. Very German name. And so Gretel is 91 years old when we meet her, and she's been living in um, the same flat in London for decades. She actually, after the war, she made her way to Paris and um, hid her identity and then she married and went to Sydney. And But then she came back, she came to England and has lived in England. And she feels guilt every day of mm. her life. She is filled with guilt and she, she grieves for her brother. Mm-hmm. But she's, in a lot of ways, she's had a good life. She made a happy marriage to a lovely man, and um, yeah, she's had a yeah, she's had a good life in a lot of ways. But you know, she's she's an old lady, and things are winding down. And in her flat, in her book of flats, a fam- new family moves in, and she is strangely drawn to their son, who is about nine years old. And it turns out that. Something's going on in his life that Greta, is she going to, is she going to intervene? Is she going to help him? Is she going to do more for him than she did for Atone. her brother? Mm. Yes. And so, yeah. So the boy with striped pyjamas, in the striped pyjamas, was a children's book, even though it's a pretty um, mm. hard subject. But this definitely is an adult's book. And this is a story... He thought he always th- thought that he would write about Gretel when he um, after he finished the boy in the striped pajamas, but he thought he would he thought that that would be the bo- book that he would write when he was very old himself. Mm-hmm. He sort of almost thought he'd I'd save I'll save it till last, and then of course the good old pandemic happened, um, and yeah. so so he had a lot of time yeah. on his own or. You know, and he sort of thought, well, I think maybe this is the time to write this book. And so he did. And um, I actually have to admit, I've never read The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Oh, have you not? No. no. Uh, well, I actually have it at home. It's one of my daughters um, did have it, and I've just kept it at home, and it comes out uh, periodically. It's always very, very sad every time you read it. So I will bring it in to you because I assume we don't have it at the Athenaeum. No, we don't. No, I might have to buy it now that we've got this, the sequel or the follow-up. What well, it's, it's called the sequel, isn't yes. it? Look at that. Three bangers, Christine. Well done. I think that deserves a sting. What do you reckon? Sting, sting? sting away. <laughs> For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, Go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M dot org dot nz Sting over. Good. Now we've got one more book and it's the latest by Kate Atkinson and it's called Shrines of Gaiety. And 
This is um, set back in 1926 um, after the Great War in the midst of um, the flapper era. and The Roaring Twenties. Yes, the very Roaring well, And what a beautiful cover. Very mm. 1920s cover. That beautiful, beautiful colours, the blue, the purple, the gold. Such rich. It was just like, well, for some people, not all, but for some people it was just a golden time between those two major wars wasn't it they had such such fun and i just love those colors they're so luxurious and rich it was such a reaction from the war and um so it's it's sort of she's taken it from real people and but fictionalized it and given them new names so it's about um, starts off the notorious queen of the glittering world of nightclubs, Nellie Crockett, who is ruthless. And she has six children and she's always wanting to ad- advance them. And she's based on a real woman. And so she has um, about four. Oh, Kylie wants that one. Chris Jenner. No. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> so anyway, so there's a dark underbelly in this world of nightclubs and people mm-hmm. dancing on the night away and stuff. And so she brings together a glittering cast of characters. And I'm just going to read a little bit of her um, acknowledgements. Um, so Kate Merrick was the real person who was the queen of Soho's night club night. And her most famous club was the 43 at 43 Gerald Street, oh. which is now in the heart of Chinatown. And she was in prison several times in her career for breaking the licensing laws. <laughs> and, of course, the book starts with Nellie Corker being released from prison um, for the same reason. And Kate also had a lot of children. She had two daughters, or two of her daughters did marry into the aristocrat. aristocrat, aristocrat yeah. Became the an posh arist- people. Yeah. One of them. <laughs> and uh, she had one son who became a published novelist, and he wrote mystery thrillers, including The ba- the Body on the Pavement in 1941. And in the case of life imitating life, art, he died during the war in somewhat mysterious circumstances after falling from a window of his top floor flat onto the pavement below, which is very ironic given the name of his book. Anyway, oh, right, that, yeah, I've got <laughs> Yeah, so... Th- <laughs> So she actually, um, she wrote an autobiography, Secrets of the 43 Club. Well, do you know, I'm just looking Kate Merrick up too. Fascinating. I love Kate Atkinson. And she says here that she was also the inspiration for the character Ma Mayfield in Evelyn Waugh's novel Brideshead Revisited. Very likely. And also one of the people that um, Kate Atkinson um, used as her research was Barbara Cartland with We Danced All Night, and of course we've we've I've read excerpts from um, We Danced All Night talking about how Barbara Cartland was a flapper and how she she used to sneak they used to go out to they'd go to um, to balls you know the yeah that, and then they would they would leave they would leave their coats on the chairs and they would sneak out and go to a nightclub and then they were, the next day they would say, oh, I turn up and say, can I have my jacket back? I, I left it behind when I left. And so they were having this sort of double life where they were respectable debutantes and, the, and then they were sneaking off to nightclubs. They, they were only dancing. So I just want to read a bit more from um, Barbara Cartland because it's very interesting. She's talking about how... 
how people totally didn't understand, young people didn't understand the old people. And so, um, blah, blah. We had no contacts with and no knowledge of older men, and the young ones with whom we danced and laughed gave us very little insight into the character or feelings of this unknown sex. In fact, older men, and for that matter older women, were looked on as strange things being very far apart from us, who possessed, we felt, no ordinary human feelings such as we were experiencing. It was not surprising we believed this, first because of our ignorance of men, and secondly because many of my contemporaries who had fathers alive had very strange and eccentric ones. The Sitwells, for instance. So Edith Sitwell and her brothers had an incredible father in the person of Sir George, he was on the years to come to fill book after book of Osbert's autobiographies and to project his personality so strongly and so persuasively over the years that it was difficult to remember any other characters being mentioned. Sir George was always building, always altering, always telling people how to do things, always convinced that he knew better than anyone else. He is a delight to read about, but he must have been how to live with. During the war, he read a letter in the Times concerning the possible benefits in reviving the medieval habits of payment in kind. He thought this an excellent idea and in 1915 wrote a letter, I can't pronounce the name of, of the third um, child, um, Sasha Vary, housemaster at Eton, saying that having been particularly hard hit by the war, he could not afford to pay the usual fees at the beginning of the next term, but instead would deliver their value in pigs and potatoes. His child, who was experiencing a very uncomfortable time at Eton after this letter, wrote desperately to Osbert, who was at the front. The letter reached him at the same time as a letter from Sir George saying that in view of the economies he had to make, he had cut off his allowance. But Osbert, being already grown up, was equal to the challenge. He wrote to his father saying, I come home on leave in about a fortnight, and as I have no allowance now, I've been able to arrange, I'm glad to say, that the guard and the leave train shall accept potatoes instead of my fare. Sir George was furious, not because he thought Osbert was being impertinent, but because he felt his son was giving away potatoes that belonged to him. In the notebook entitled The Wisdom of Life, Sir George had written, Never open a letter from a correspondent known to be troublesome until after luncheon. Osbert does not relate at what hour his letter was read, but there was a satisfactory conclusion. Osbert's allowance was restored and the school fees were paid by cheque. The Crows and Girls, Cynthia, Alexandria, were also contemporaries and they had George Nathaniel, the first Marquis Crozen, as their father. Lord, Cro Lord Crozen, who Max Beerburn described as Britannia's butler, was a man of great gifts of intellect. He had been Viceroy of India and held many important posts in the Cabinet. Unfortunately, he suffered fools most ungladly, and he presented to his equals and inferiors, especially to his inferiors, a facade of extreme aristocratic class consciousness and, and pompousness, which left people either speechless with rage or convulsed with laughter. We are not to know, and at least until all the biographies were written, how deeply he had suffered as a child from a mother who ignored him, who had ignored him, and from a sadistic governess. Um, yes, and all his life he was to yearn for love. But um, so one of his friends wrote a ditty about him when they, I think, when they were in, 
and Eton. My name is George Nathaniel Crozen. I am a most superior person. My cheek is pink, my hair is sleek. I dine at Blenheim once a week. And that followed him all his life and um, was very a bane of his life. But there's another example of um, his snobbishness. A friend referred to his marble pillars and he said haughtily, my pilasters are alabaster. And so by 1919, Lord George Churchill and Birkenhead and Chamberlain nicknamed him Lord Alabaster. <laughs> he was just, he was notorious for being a real snob. Um, so then there was another person who I actually tried to look up, but I, he's, he's now quite obscure. Richard Norton's father, Lord Granley, was so absent-minded that when he went up to change for dinner, he would often take off his clothes and go to bed. He had a passion for buying houses. He inherited five, but was always buying others and moving, often without even telling his family. His relations would arrive to stay for Christmas to find that he had come to the wrong place, and they had no idea where to find him. One day, Lord, Lord Granley was travelling by train when he saw a very attractive house standing on a small hillside. He instantly decided to own it. He got out at the next station, went to the largest house agents in the town and told them to buy the house for him. We have no house of that description in our books, the agent informed him. Find out the name, the owner and what he wants for it and be quick, Lord Grantley instructed him. The whole office went into action. Lord Grantley sat down and waited. Presently the little agent came up to him triumphantly. The house is called Eton Manor, he said. The owner is an old gentleman called Lord Grantley. When... <laughs> When he was 87, he was cited as a correspondent in a divorce action. He was furious when the judge informed, adjourned the proceedings while he considered whether the allegation could be admitted at such an advanced age. You think, he said, the fellow was implying that I'm past it. He was delighted when the grounds were allowed and the decree nice granted. So there you go. I, I like the best one. He owned the house. He wanted hilarious. Okay, thanks for that, Christine. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for the books as well. Happy and, reading. And until next time, yes. Happy reading. On cue, please, Christine. On cue. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.